Sword and Laser is brought to you by you. If you get a dollar's worth of value from the show, how about giving us a dollar back? Head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it is so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and of course, awesome discussions from fans just like you. And we are very happy to welcome author Anthony St. Clair onto the show once again. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? It's going pretty well. My, my fanboy took over me there for a second. Like, I get to talk about Pratchett. Oh, yeah. So, yes, on the last episode, we mentioned that we were looking for a Terry Pratchett expert, someone who was very well versed in the world of Discworld. Um, and uh, Anthony raised his hand, his virtual hand, and uh, decided he would like to come on the show uh, once more and, and talk about a, a different series of books, of course. Uh, we had you on the show about a year ago talking about your books, The Rucksack Universe. Um, how have things been going since then? It's been quite a time. Uh, my third book, Forever the Road, came out in September, an ebook and paperback. That's been quite a ride. That's been my, my biggest, most expansive book to date. And right now, I actually am about to start editing the fourth book in the series. I finished drafting that back in oh, about the end of March. So that should be out around the end of this year. And then I've also got book five and also, I guess, book zero, kind of a prequel in the works, too. Fantastic. Um, so you are more than welcome to join in during our quick burn discussion if you have any thoughts on the stories uh, from our audience. Um, so we'll jump right into things. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I forgot the most important section of the show, the what are we drinking section. Tom, what are you drinking? Well, Veronica, I'm having a 12-year-old Dalmore scotch. Mm. It was given to me as a birthday present a couple of years ago when I first arrived in Los Angeles. And I have to say, the Dalmore is just as delicious and smooth as I remembered it. That's very nice, Tom. Sometimes when I take a sip of scotch, I start talking like this, and I apologize. <laughs> you sound like the, um, what's the, uh, the Dos Equis guy? The most interesting, <laughs> the man, most in interesting man in the world. You need a smoking jacket right now, Tom. <laughs> yeah. So Absolutely. And I'm also drinking... Um, a, a brown liquor. I'm having a bullet bourbon today. Uh, usually I'm going with the rye, but today I'm just going with the regular, the regular uh, bourbon. And um, Anthony, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you about this section. I don't know if this is something oh, no. you did the last time you were on the show or if you're prepared or not. Well, the last time I was on the show, you had broken your arm around painkillers. So I think you and I were both drinking coffee or something. So this time I am, I'm representing Eugene's craft beer scene. This is Oakshire's uh, overcast espresso stout. It's a wonderful stout made with cold pressed coffee from a local roaster. So it's kind of like a multitasking beer. That's yeah. very awesome. I love coffee beers. Uh, they're one of my favorite one of my favorite beverages uh, to have at, out at at the local pub. Um, oh, and viewers, by the way. Uh, if you're watching the episode live over on Google Hangouts, uh, we have the Q&A app turned on. So if you want to interject any comments about Discworld later in the show, or if you have any questions for Anthony or any questions for us, uh, feel free to post those over on the Google Hangout page. 
All right. Well, let's kick things off with the quick burns, Tom. Uh, yes. Thanks to everybody who submits stuff. You guys continually impress me. And in fact, at this point, I have to apologize. We are getting more quick burn submissions in the Goodreads forum than we can include. Uh, we would just be going on forever, but they're all good. So keep them coming. Don't hold back. Uh, but I want to tell people, hey, there's more good news than just what we'll cover here. Go to the Goodreads forum and check out the quick burns thread there. Let's start with Joanna, though, uh, who pointed out it looks like the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell series is about to get started later this year on BBC America. They just released a trailer for the seven part miniseries. It looks really cool, I have to say. So I'm not sure if we've talked about this book a lot on the show, but I actually lemmed it a long time ago. No kidding. Yeah, and that was, um, I, I felt bad about that because the book came very highly recommended to me by a lot of people. Um, but I just couldn't. I, I just couldn't get into it. I don't know why. Maybe why did I would get into it. I I don't. Is it a favorite of yours? No, I'm just curious. I don't know. Well, why doesn't well, anyone like I, any book? You know. Yeah, I know. I guess that's true. But uh, this in particular feels like the kind of book that a lot of people love. It's not. Uh, say I don't know as inaccessible as memoirs found in a bathtub. Uh, <laughs> Just off the top of my head. Just so put that out there, yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious if there was a reason where you, like, you got to a point or if, you, if it was just one of those you lost interest in. I think it was the uh, the language, the writing style. Mm -hmm. It was very um, – it, it's hard to remember now because, I mean, this had to have been over 10 years ago that I tried to read it. Um, and oh, so you were six? Did they, oh, that's, that's actually very sweet of you to say. <laughs> it was a weirdly thinly veiled compliment. It was. Um, but I I got bored and I, I just couldn't get through it. Uh, Anthony, have you have you read this particular book? It's been a while, but I did read it, read it a few years back after my wife just devoured it. And I actually I was really into it. I I, I often like it when a book has that you no know, well, regular life bum bum bum, but then magic is clearly interwoven and you have that sense of oh it was there and it's not. Mm -hmm. yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, so this uh, this uh, series is going to be coming out on BBC One, I believe, um, and it looks really phenomenal. And uh, there's there's magical elements. It's it's kind of like it looks like a magical Peaky Blinders. If that I, that was a totally bad example, but I mean just Maybe. the way it's shot and the darkness yeah. and like it definitely has that that yeah. color tone that Peaky Blinders has for sure. So visually, I'm making that comparison, but I don't think yeah. we're going to see uh, Jonathan Strange or Mr. Norrell, uh, you know, doing too much, you know, bar Banging fighting. Heads. <laughs> Banging heads. No, but you know, the imagery in the book is so rich. I can see where it's going to be a good adaptation. You have things like, what was the, the King Stare, I believe it was, some of those kind of behind the scenes of our usual world. I, there's such rich imagery in the book. I can see that translating well to the modern screen. Very cool. And not just BBC One. That's great for UK folks. It's also coming to BBC America in 2015 as well. So it, that's nice when we all get it. So we don't even have to steal it. Yes. We don't have to break air. our terms of service in order to watch something. Fantastic. Our next story comes from Clyde who says, A passage which was cut from A Wrinkle in Time has been found by Madeleine L'Engle's granddaughter and published by the Wall Street Journal. This is like, that's kind of, that's pretty big news. I mean, considering A Wrinkle in Time is one of the most beloved books in in all of, of fantasy history at this point. Um, do they have the passage actually posted on... Ah, here it is. So it's a passage with uh, Meg pushing back against her father's argument about the dangers of fixating on security. 
and it's about halfway down uh, through the Wall Street Journal post. You can read it there. Um, so yeah, it's 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 you can you can check it out online. Um, what do you think, Tom? Is this is this big news or or is this just kind of like oh well that happens? A lot of things get taken out of books. It's not that that big of a deal. Well, it hit it hits me on a couple of levels. Uh, for for one. I had the pleasure of briefly meeting Madeline Lengel uh, when she came to Greenville to speak at Greenville College, and she actually had dinner with my girlfriend's, my high school girlfriend's family at the time. So this was like 1986, I think, or 87. Wow. Uh, and uh, I was a huge fan, loved Wrinkle in Time. She was a very lovely person, gave a great talk at the college. And I, I'm a big fan of this book and her perspective in it. So having this additional material just from a fan standpoint is like, well, it's like the deleted scenes, right? Like, ooh, what did she leave out here? On another level, the fact that she's talking about the danger of placing too much value on security, especially in a democracy, definitely changes the spin of this book, which is very much about the evils of totalitarianism and because it's a Cold War era book from the perspective of comparing it to the Soviet Union. But this passage says, hey, you know what? This can happen in a democracy too if you overvalue security. Um, Ms. Voiklis, uh says, uh, this is the granddaughter, it's normal to be afraid, but you can't let the fear control your decisions. Otherwise, you risk becoming like Kamazots. And, and that's the passage that it's talking about. Security is a seductive thing. Uh, he tells his daughter, Mr. Murray, I've come to the conclusion that it's the greatest evil there is. Um, and he talks about how, yeah, we all want to feel secure, but there are times when we want to give up our security. He talks about how his daughter rescued him in the book, right? I think that plays perfectly well with our current world discussion about things. I also understand why it was taken out of the book. It's It's a very... It's a very political exposition in a book that isn't full of direct political exposition, so it kind of mm. stands out. But I'm really glad we're getting a chance to read it now. It feels very historical. I mean, it's nice. It's it's like unearthing a, a treasure from time when you get stuff like that, especially when the author has passed on. Mm -hmm. She has, correct? As far as we know. Okay. <laughs> I was, I, I, mean, I, I, yeah, I was kind of racking my brain. Beyond this earthly realm, who knows where Madeline Lingo is. Indeed. Our next story comes from Tomahome, who says, I don't know if you've covered Arthur C. Clarke Award nominees. It's a juried award, different from the Hugos and different from Arthur C. Clarke novels as well. Um, so yeah, it's, British, it's a British organization, and they mm -hmm. just award what they think is the best science fiction novel of the year. And our our choices uh, this year for the 2015 award, I'm sorry, the, the 2015 shortlist for novels published in 2014. There you go. We always have this one. Uh, we have The Girl with All the Gifts, M.R. Carey, The Book of Strange New Things, uh, Michel Faber, or Michael Faber, <laughs> Europe in Autumn, uh, Dave Hutchinson, Memory of Water, Emmy Etenart. Taranta, The first fifteen lives of Harry August by Claire North and Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, uh, or Mandel. Um, so this is this is every episode me trying to, you know, chug my way through people's names. Classic Belmont. Um, but yeah, they are voted upon uh, by members of the British Science Fiction Association, the Science Fiction Foundation, and Sci-Fi London Film Festival. Um, so it's it's very different from what we're we're used to 
uh, for other big awards like the Hugo's. It's actually very similar to a length. lot of other awards. I know what you mean is the Hugo's, which is everybody's thinking about these days. It's different than that for sure. Yep. I was going to say it might be kind of a breath of fresh air to have just a fresh list where there's not so much controversy going on like we've got in the Hugo's. Yeah, it, it is. A, it's, it's funny. We go through these award lists all the time on Sword and Laser, uh, but they do stand out more suddenly because of the, the controversy and, and you want to start comparing them, et, et cetera. But always these lists of awards have different ways of being selected and they and they usually shine the light on different books. It is telling when one book is na- mentioned in multiple award nominee lists, whether it's in the Hugos or not. I think Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven is getting a lot of attention in a lot of different award arenas, and and rightly so, I think. Mm-hmm. Shall we talk about Dara's submission? Galance has acquired the sequel to Arthur C. Clarke's A Meeting with Medusa. It's an unauthorized sequel, obviously, because Arthur C. Clarke is out there with Madeline Lingle somewhere. But uh, it's being written by Alistair Reynolds and Stephen Baxter. So you got some some big guns uh, getting together and they say, look, we are inspired by Arthur C. Clarke and we want to we want to tell a story inspired by A Meeting with Medusa. Um, I, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, by, by inspired by the Medusa Chronicles, and they're calling the book a meeting with Medusa. That's exciting. I, I think that's really cool. I, I love this kind of idea. I know it'll probably take some, you know, old school fans of of Arthur C. Clarke maybe a little bit by storm. They might. I be still a got it bit... backwards. A meeting with Medusa was a Clark story. The Medusa Chronicles is the book they're writing. Okay. Okay. Don't send emails. <laughs> don't, send, don't send the angry emails. It's fine. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's a pretty neat thing to do. I mean, we we see this traditionally sometimes when an author passes away, much like uh, Robert Jordan's passing and the subsequent follow up by Brandon Sanderson uh, with a um, the Wheel of Time novels. Uh, but this is yeah, this is a little bit different because there maybe there wasn't intended on being a sequel. No, yeah, I don't think I, it certainly isn't authorized uh, like right. like Jordan's were. And I wonder what fiction, except just with a much bigger cachet. Yeah, and I wonder what the um, what Arthur C. Clarke's uh, estate thinks of this kind of thing. You know, I didn't I didn't read the entire blog post. And I haven't read any follow ups to it, but I wonder if there is there any issue there. Like, is that okay? Do they have to give? I guess if it's unauthorized, then technically they haven't given permission to to do something like that. Well, but. I'm calling it unauthorized. It actually in this glance posting doesn't say anything about it. Uh, it says it says they're inspired by Clark. So either they got permission or this short story is out of copyright and mm-hmm. they're they're perfectly free to do with it. And honestly, remix culture, this is, they should be able to do this. Yeah. Uh, totally as long agree. as they're not, you know, the story is old enough that I don't think the Clark estate and certainly not Arthur C. Clark are going to suffer because uh, they're creating this and they, they should be able to do that. Uh, just, just like you can take Dickens and, and, and Shakespeare and, and are inspired by them and create things in those worlds. People do that a lot. Uh, you know, at a certain point, things do have to pass into the public domain. Mm -hmm. And I like what you said, Anthony, of like, this is big gun fan fiction, Stephen Baxter (laughs) and Alistair Reynolds. Pretty awesome. Well, there's clearly that sense to it. You've got some pretty big name guys, but a lot of us are familiar now with Baxter with his work on the longer series and whatnot, and to see someone say, oh, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, hmm, there's clearly more fun to be had. Yeah. So you have to wonder, as some of these just big, big guns of the science fiction world, as we get longer and longer down the reputation of their work, 
to see what new people might do with those worlds is pretty fascinating. Yeah, I agree. And I think some of that conversation happened even around Discworld uh, after Terry Pratchett's passing uh, with his daughter potentially taking up the mantle and continuing to write in that universe. Uh, we don't know if she she has said she doesn't want to do that or doesn't plan to do that. But just the idea that it's, it's possible um, is really nice, I think, and comforting in a way. Yeah. And, and maybe she'll change her mind. I hundred percent understand why she would not want to do that right now. Mm-hmm. It's you know I it's the definition of too soon. Yeah. And especially I mean it's we're hardly you know, not even two months since Pratchett's passing. So we have, and we have already know there's a book coming out. I'm sure there's a lot of sense too. Let's let let the man be for a while and then let this new book come out. Let's give it some time and and I can see then though where I, I want to say it's what Pratchett's wife and the daughter who are I think definitely his wife, who are kind of have ownership of the series now. So I'm sure there'll be a point at which they want to take a serious look at that, but Mm -hmm. they don't need to rush into anything. Yeah. Well, moving on to other news, um, we have another post from Dara who says there's been a cover reveal for Charlie Jane Anders' debut novel, All the Birds in the Sky, which was posted over on tour. Uh, the book itself is coming out February 2nd, 2016, so we definitely have some time for that. Um, but I was really excited about this because I actually have read the novel so far. Uh, well, it's finished. Uh, I don't know how much editing it's gone through or if she's finished in the editing process, um, but it's it's a really phenomenal book, and it's also great because it mixes sci-fi and fantasy so well together. Um, but the final cover art was done by Will Stahl, um, and it's really beautiful. So if you guys want to check out uh, the blog post over on tour.com, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And you can also read uh, some of the blurbs that have been done so far. I, I, I also blurbed it. I, you, you never know if they're going to use it or not. Sure. Um, so we'll see. But uh, Michael Chabon uh, wrote the cover blurb, so you can check it out over there as well. But I'm excited for this one. And, you know, Charlie's done an amazing job with her, her short stories and, and stuff that she's written uh, over on tour and in other, other places, anthologies. Uh, but this is her, her first novel, and it, I think it's really exciting. And the cover is awesome. It's got birds and sky, but in a really cool way. Yeah. Uh, finally, Sky pointed out that Mark Lawrence, uh, Empire of Thorns, Red Queen's War, those kind of books, has a new deal, a new three-book deal from HarperCollins for Red Sister, uh, this one featuring a female protagonist. Nice. And he also goes on to say, also, when is Sword and Laser going to interview Mark Lawrence? <laughs> uh, I think we reached out to him for the video show back in the day. Uh, I don't remember if it was the first season or the second season. And we I had honestly, a really tight I, schedule in the second season, too. So Yeah, a- it was a quick turnaround. Um, so I can't, I honestly, I don't remember if he got back to us or what his response was. Um, but I'm, I'm more than happy to try once again, especially with the new book deal. That, that could be a fun thing to chat about. Yeah, it's uh, the first ever female protagonist for Mark, so it'll be interesting to talk about. Yeah, that's a big, that's a pretty big shift. That it kind would of be perspective. A cool perspective. Absolutely. All right. Well, now it is time for Barrier Sword, which is our feedback from the audience. A real quick one this week. We have an email from Drew who writes, Hi, Tom and Veronica. Just wanted to drop a note quick and say that, Tom, I immediately thought, oh, man, this is like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for Fantasy 2 as I got into this book. I believe he is talking about Weird Sisters. Um, He says it has really the same vibe, and I also have no idea that Pratchett's work was like that. Fun stuff. Also, I'm listening to the audio version, and it appears to be an older recording, so I could see why that is put off some but mm. I'm kind of enjoying the old school vibe thanks true 
Yeah, I guess the the audio quality feels a little bit more like maybe a book on tape quality than the than the more recent recordings, but it still didn't turn me off. I I, I thought the multiple voices was cool. I thought the narrator's uh, inflections and interpretations of the text were great. Um, it's just me though, apparently. But that's neat because, um, you know, we actually, when we got together at the Sword and Laser Book Club meetup in person this week here in San Francisco, um, there was a lot of talk about the comparison between Pratchett and Douglas Adams um, and that it has, you know, Pratchett, Douglas Adams, and then even going into things like Monty Python and Doctor Who, this very mm -hmm. quintessential, you know, British humor, yeah. British humor that that seems to to cross all those lines and time and space <laughs> and literally more synergy there and I think we sometimes realize and especially I can see that with some of Pratchett's earlier stuff like Weird Sisters I remember I'd read Douglas Adams and all the Hitchhiker books before I ever came to Discworld and that was definitely one of the first things that grabbed me as well just that sense of absurdity but there's something behind it Excellent. And that takes us actually into our wrap-up of Weird Sisters by Terry Pratchett. Um, so if you haven't finished yet, and if you are not interested in spoilers, uh, now would be a good time to turn off the show. Thank you for listening. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, stay with us, and uh, we're going to hop into the wrap-up right now. Um, so yeah, Weird Sisters, it is uh, book six of the Discworld novels, uh, the second book in the in the witch books. And uh, I, I thought it was great. I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun to read. It was a, a pretty easy read, which I've, I've been appreciating recently because I, I feel like I've been getting into a lot of really dense novels and this felt more more fun. And, uh, you know, I read the entire Tiffany Aching series. That was probably, that was, that was my only entry into the Discworld novels at that point. Um, and that was their, uh, that was his young adult novels. Um, so I was a little worried or, or not worried, just like, oh, how is this going to be different from the young adult stuff? Is it going to be funnier? Is it going to be more adult? I don't know. Um, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And there were, there were, I mean, just the, the Macbeth reference alone were, were, were worth the read and the, and the humor involved with that. Um, but what did it, I mean, so I guess, Anthony, I mean, you, you've read all the books. Uh, what, I'm assuming you've read probably most of them at least. H how do you feel Weird Sisters compares to, to other quintessential Terry Pratchett novels? There is something about Weird Sisters that I think actually sets the stage for a lot of what we come to see in the series. So, as you said, this is one of the earlier books. This was actually my very first Discworld book. I, I oh, wow. reread it on Sunday to get caught up. It's been a little while. My, my trusty 25th Extraordinary Years of Discworld paperback. And what I see in there, you have where Pratchett, we talk about remix culture. Pratchett remixes so much of what we're familiar with. In this case, it's Shakespeare. He will pull in, he will steal from anything that... <laughs> will establish this story. And Macbeth in this was such a natural. You've got so many elements of Macbeth with the players and the play and the woods that Felmet has creeped out about. But the dagger. The dagger. The hand washing. You know, cross that out as well does. But when you really dig into all this stuff, you know, Pratchett on the surface is so there's so much it's so ridiculous because Discworld is by nature ridiculous. But what struck me about every Discworld book, and I've read all of them, many of them at least like three times, there is also this sense of we have this really absurd world, and then within that, we look for whatever sense of order 
or whatever sense of goodness or whatever sense of something solid that we can grab onto. And I think we find that as a common theme in Weird Sisters and in the other books. It's the, you've got this maelstrom of nuttiness around you. What can you find that's going to help you get through that? Interesting. That was very well said. <laughs> Tom, what did you think? I, I Yeah, I'm... I really enjoyed the layered approach, right? Uh, and I and I think you're right, Anthony. It 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 helps you to not take things too seriously. I keep thinking of that Neil Gaiman uh, post that we talked about the, on the last episode, where he talks about how Terry Pratchett always was described as jolly, and Neil said no, he wasn't jolly. And you could see the same thing when you read his when you read this book. You, it's like there's a lot of jolly stuff and a lot of joking and a lot of winking, mm-hmm. uh, but there's also a lot of serious. Uh, identification of real problems down below that satire. Uh, you know, the, the problems where two people who are not, you know, the most attractive people in the world, as we often see on television, uh, fall in love, uh, but maybe they're not in the perfect situation for it. And how do they overcome that? Uh, it's a really poignant story that's being told with McGrath and the fool, but it's, it's told in an entirely ridiculous way, so you don't want to reject it as being either uncomfortably true or, or, or trite, uh, and, and it works so much more because of that. And then, then there's even smaller things like calling uh, the theater that they're building in Ankhmo Park uh, the disc because it's Discworld, not Globe World, so you wouldn't call it the globe. <laughs> it's, it's great. I mean, it works on so many levels. I'm glad you mentioned the, the Neil Gaiman. I, when I was reading the book the other day, now I'd read that piece a little while back about just that sense of anger that fuels Pratchett. And when I was reading Weird Sisters, there's a bit where Granny Weatherwax, we're having kind of an internal moment with her. I think it's when she's about to uh, knock the wheels off the wagon that nearly runs her down. But there's that talk about all the anger inside her and that she's dammed it up and now it's time to start letting that out. You'll, you'll find a similar anger in Sam Vibes in the Nightwatch books. There is a huge just rage in Vibes. When I was reading that bit in Weird Sisters the other day with Granny's anger, it suddenly hit me that Pratchett's anger, whatever sense of outrage he had about the world and our own various stupidities and brutalities that we consistently keep bringing to this life, I, I have this sense now that he took that anger and channeled it into Granny and Vimes, especially. They're two of his most powerful characters. They're two of the characters who save, if not the entire entirety of their respective place, like Linker or Aethel Court. They save the Discworld. And it's because they take that fury and they're able to do something else with it. They're able to transform it. It was, it was pretty potent to see, I think for the first time, that hint of I think something in the author coming through in two of his characters. Yeah, I've heard that the Night's Watch series does take things into in a slightly darker place. But there was another quote of, of Gaiman's that I, I don't have exactly off the top of my head, but it's to the effect that, you know, the opposite of, of funny is not serious. Mm-hmm. And, and so you can be serious and also funny at the same time. And that's what Pratchett does really well is, is kind of, you know, get into these, these ideas of, of racism or class divide or, you know, any number of things that he talks about in his books, uh, but still making it funny. You're just sneaking those ideas in there and, and making it. Sure, 
Yes, exactly. So I think that that that's a very uh, it's a very good line of Gaiman's and and very true for not just Pratchett for but for for many of authors and and stand up comedians and and people who work in the media and who you, you know have have stories to tell and and get through to people using humor as that delivery method. I think what may have prevented me from picking up Terry Pratchett earlier. Uh, I, yeah, I worked at a bookstore for six years in the 90s and I, a million Terry Pratchett books came through my hands at some point. It was a used bookstore, right? So we were we were buying them back and selling them as fast as, as we could. And he, he was very popular. People bought him, but it always looked silly. Uh, the cover art didn't do it uh, justice for one thing. And even when you would crack it open and read a couple lines, it would feel light. It would feel funny, like you're talking about. And you have to actually read a few pages of it before you start to see that texture that is underneath. And I think Granny is a great example of that. She's not deified as the outrageous justice, you know, you know wielding the sword of justice and anger. Uh, she's actually sent up as, as sort of like, eh, you know, she's always angry. She's She's not a perfect character, and none of them are. And it, it takes reading more of Pratchett before you start to see that outline where you're like, I am enjoying this, but it's not just because of jokes. It's not joke, 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 joke. It's because there are jokes on top of something substantial. I would really agree with that, Tom. And I, can, and I see your point where there are people who might be put off, especially, I think, with the earlier works. I think as Pratchett progressed in the series... When you get to some of the later witches books, and especially, like you pointed out, some of the Nightwatch books, and I would say especially over the last maybe, I don't know, half a dozen, uh, especially including Raising Steam, which was the last, I think the last major uh, Discord release before he passed away, you really, I think he tightens that up. You get the humor, but it actually, I think, starts getting a little subtler, and there's some of the, I think he starts actually taking off the camouflage. So you know what? What I'm here to talk about is how if we acted smarter and were a little less dumb to each other and did less stupid nonsense and got away from irrationalities, we'd have a better world and we'd be better people. I think he started to take the gloves off in the later books more. Yeah, I, I, I've also heard that as well. And just that, you know, the earlier books take a little time. He, he's flexing his muscles and, and learning his voice and, and figuring out what story he wants to tell. But I still think that this book... I think that I, I think he had found his voice by this point, at least for me. I mean, I didn't have any issues at all with the writing or the humor or nothing stood out to me and felt like, oh, this is an early book. Some people felt that maybe it was a little too on the nose with the Macbeth references, but yeah, I, I thought that was fine. I, I didn't mind. I, sometimes it's okay to be on the nose, right? When you're doing it on purpose. Like, right. how can you not be on the nose with a Shakespeare reference? It's freaking yeah, Shakespeare, yeah, right? You, got it. you might as well, if you got it, flaunt it. You know, yeah, just go for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that also is part of what hooks you in. I mean, I have read that opening paragraph, you know, when shall we three meet again? Well, I can do next Tuesday. I don't know how many times I've read that, and every time I'm in stitches. <laughs> he also really understood early on, you get him with a laugh, you can sneak in all you want. You know, what Mary Poppins said is still true. A spoonful of sugar does make the medicine mm -hmm. go down. And crash it, I, I would agree, Veronica. In this book, he really nailed a lot of that voice, a lot of that timing that is really quintessentially him. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and, you know, it, it felt so different from the Tiffany Aching books. And, and maybe that's because I read Tiffany Aching first and also listened to it in audible form as opposed to reading it in on Kindle or in paperback. Um, but it didn't, you know, maybe I need to go back and actually reread those or, or at least reread the first book because it didn't. I wasn't, I was, there's a lot of the same humor, but it felt different to me. And I'm not sure why, if he was just writing differently because it was a young adult novel and maybe he didn't think the references would be as clear or the adult humor wouldn't come through as much. I'm not sure. What do you think? I think that was part of it. I think he did want to, uh, I would not say scale down because I don't think he scaled down in the Tiffany Aikens. I think he decided to take a narrower focus with it. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've always loved about the Discworld books is that you can truly come to that series from any book and be right in there and be hungry for any other book in the series and really jump around at will. You don't have to do anything chronologically or in published order. Um, but I think with Tiffany Aching, he decided that he wasn't really going to worry about that as much. It'd be very identifiable, but I think he wanted to stake out some clearer territory of here is a newer character. Here's a newer force in this world. There's something about Tiffany that and I think he's, he starts establishing that in part through his female characters in books like Weird Sisters. They are powerful. And yes, they're flawed, but their strength, man, I would never, ever want to be on Granny's bad side. No. And definitely not Nanny's. I think even her more so. But Tiffany, I always saw as, here's, here is Discworld, the next generation. And there are rough edges that are now getting polished. There are powers that are getting more refined, where there might have been someone who I wrote as motivated out of a fear. Here's where I'm going to motivate someone more out of a love. Hmm. That's great. Um, yeah, so man, I, I agree with Danny Og. Uh, she's, she's the one who scares me the most because <laughs> she's in such a good mood all the time. Uh, yeah. And so you know when she turns angry, uh, it, she means it. You know, Granny, Granny Weatherwax is kind of angry all the time. So when she gets angry, you almost don't take it as seriously. Nanny Og reminds me of my next door neighbor, frankly, <laughs> who I get along with great. Um, and I'm going to try to keep it that way. My my question, I the one question that keep came, coming back for me was why, if, if Lord Felmet hates hates the kingdom that much, why did he want to be Duke? Was it just because his wife, his wife wanted him to? His wife wanted him to, and it was the one he could get. You know, he, I, I agree. It was really ultimately kind of like a lot with Macbeth. It was ultimately that power behind him who was pushing him on. Pick up a knife. Get it done. Come on. But he did also have this drive to be king, just not necessarily the full wherewithal to do it. Blinker was the kingdom he could get. So, yeah, he hated it, but what can he do? Yeah. It was the job available. It took yeah. me a long time to figure out that the fool was actually the um, the next in line for the throne. That took that's me a little while. Those, surprisingly a long time. That's another of those things about Pratchett that I love, too, because he's one of those writers where you can really then go back through the book and have the you son of a moments. You were setting this up all along. There's a line really early on. I forget offhand where it was, where Granny is, I think, actually maybe holding baby Tom John and saying... Only a born fool would want to be a king. Ah, 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 ah. Like, you oh. bastard. Spoiler. There you are. Yep. Yeah. That's pretty great. Um, 
Well, we haven't gotten, uh, oh, we have a great uh, quote from, from Andrew Ainsworth in, in the Google Hangout chat who says, Patrick Rothfuss says that, quote, every wise man fears the anger of a gentle woman. That's the wise man's fear. So apparently that's the wise man's fear, yes. <laughs> that's a very good fear to have, yeah. Because, boy, if you've yes. gotten it, you've earned it. Yeah. Indeed. Um, so is there anything else you guys wanted to touch on? Any 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 cogent points you wanted to make about Weird Sisters? Anthony? No, I would point out how much uh, Pratchett's Larry comes into effect, I think especially in this book. There are certain books in the Discworld series that really lay groundwork for a lot of what happens, and Weird Sisters is one of those. In the other witches' books, uh, you know, Lords and Ladies, a Carpe Jugulum and whatnot, there is a lot more progression and character arc that you can follow, especially with McGrath. And when you come into a book like Weird Sisters, you start getting that laid out in front of you. It's like, this is a lot of how a Pratchett book is going to go. And this is a lot of what's happened before. And you can go to these later ones, point back to this, and see where all this stuff really starts kicking into gear. We had a lot of people who were reading Terry Pratchett for the first time in this round, in this month. Uh, if you were to make a recommendation where, if they wanted to stay in the Discworld universe, where should they go next, do you think? You know, I would say that they should go to something completely different because part of the strength of Discworld is its breadth. You have so much variety in the series. I would say pick up one of one of the Nightwatch books. Um, glance at the shelf. Probably something like um, oh, Men at Arms. <laughs> I would say Men at Arms. That is such a good book that brings in some really good stuff, brings in some really fascinating characters. You get into a lot of where the world around Sam Vime starts to change. And in turn, the world of Hank Morpork, which really, and especially as the series goes, is where Pratchett focuses the most of his writing. Yeah, that's really the center of of the activities going on around Discworld, right? Is Ankhmore Pork? Yeah, it, it's there. You know, Ankhmore Pork pretty much takes London and New York and that, probably Hong Kong or something and mishmashes them and makes them even cooler and smellier. Men at Arms also has one of my favorite lines in the whole series. It's one of the things I try to live up to, uh, and I won't spoiler it, but there's a very intense moment near the end of the book, and one of the main characters has this brilliant line where he says, personal is not the same as important. All right. mm. I just love that line. I, I will reread that whole book just to get to that line. Nice. That's awesome. Well, thank you for helping us wrap up Weird Sisters, Anthony. Uh, it was nice to have uh, your insight as as someone who knows so much about Discworld. Um, yeah, I don't think, you know, Tom and I are, are still pretty new to all of this, so it, it's great to have that breadth of, of knowledge about what else is going on in the rest of the universe as well. Oh, my pleasure. It's such a joy to talk with you guys and just get to you know, talk with the community again, too. Well, don't go anywhere yet, because we have to talk about our next book pick for the month of May, which is a Tom novel. Tom picked this one. Tell us about it, Tom. Yeah, this one has a sword and a laser in it. 
Oh boy. So how can I not pick it? Uh, Sword of Rhiannon by Lee Brackett, published in June 1949 in the Thrilling Wonder Stories magazine, uh, under the title Sea Kings of Mars. So if you find it as Sea Kings of Mars, it's the same story. And then was republished as a book in 1953 as, as an ace double. If you remember back in the 50s, ace doubles would give you two novels in one. They'd be one on one side, one on the other. Uh, it was ace double D36 paired with Conan the Conqueror by Robert wow. E. Howard. Uh, Encyclopedia of Science Fiction calls Sword of Rhiannon perhaps the finest of Brackett's novels. And one of the reasons I wanted to read Lee Brackett was just to go back and read like a good, solid pulp fiction novel from the 50s. Uh, something that was just sword and sorcery, uh, planets and kings and battles. Uh, and also because I'm fascinated with Lee Brackett, Ever since I read the secret history of uh, how, or, I'm sorry, how Star Wars conquered the universe, uh, and learned a little bit of why George Lucas chose Lee Brackett to write the first draft of the screenplay for The Empire Strikes Back. Part of the reason was because he was a big fan of her pulp science fiction novels from when he was a kid. Uh, the other part was that he had written the, uh, or, I'm sorry, Lee had written the screenplay for The Big Sleep. Uh, in 1945, the one that starred Humphrey Bogart, as well as the screenplay for Rio Bravo in 1959. So she's got some chops. Yeah, you know, I think this is, it's interesting too, because uh, Lee is a she, and, and that is something that was pretty unusual in the world of, of sci-fi pulp novel writing, uh, you know, back in the 50s and 40s. I mean, I, I, the interesting thing is that Lee is a very, it can go either way. That could be a man's name, that could be a woman's name. Oh, and, and it's L-E-I-G-H, right? right so even right. more, yeah, more confusing. But that was, that's her actual name. It was not a nom de plume. Um, so that was just kind of convenient, perhaps. Uh, you know, I'm sure there were a lot of female writers that were writing under male names in, in those days because it, it meant more work, perhaps. Um, but she didn't have to do that. That was, that was her actual name. Uh, yeah, I started listening to this book in, on Audible, um, where it is under... I think it's under seeking. No, it's no, under it's sort of Rhiannon. Sort of Rhiannon. Sort of Rhiannon and, and, yep. um, and I will, I will warn you guys. The the narration feels very old school as well in this novel. Um, but the more I listen to it, the more I've gotten used to it. And that's something you kind of always have to do with a new audible reader, a new narrator that you're not familiar with, or someone that's a little more books on tape sounding, as Tom mentioned earlier. <laughs> um, but it's it's good, and it is definitely very classic. And I love the fact that it is a 1940s pulp sci-fi novel written by a woman, and it kind of it, it brings back a lot of the thoughts and conversations we had about, you know, what what is traditional sci-fi? What does that even mean? And to have one like that written by a woman, uh, woman uh, you know, is, is pretty cool. And within the first, I don't know, few minutes, you get both a sword and a laser. I cannot emphasize that enough. I was going to say, that alone sounds yeah. because it's far too rare that you get to have both. And when you started talking about the book, my first thought was Star Wars, because how often do you get good science fiction, a sword, a little mysticism, bam. There's even oh, no, time he's travel. not even, he's, he's speaking literally. There is a literal yeah. sword and a literal laser in the first few pages of the book. Yeah. We're not speaking in, in, you know, thematic terms. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, and so, 
So yeah, there is the Audible uh, audiobook. Uh, and thanks to everybody, by the way, on Goodreads who pitched in. I wasn't sure about this because I know some people get upset if it's not available as a brand new ebook from Amazon. Uh, but folks were awesome at finding ways to get this book, which is mostly out of print, but people found it in print at smaller publishers. They found ebook versions of it. Uh, so the community really came together to make this pick happen. There is, uh, of course, used copies available on Amazon. On and, and lots of places. Go to your local science fiction bookstore, your local used bookstore. You might be able to find it there. Uh, Bain Books actually puts it out as an ebook under the name Sea Kings of Mars if you're looking for an ebook version of it. Uh, so, again, thanks to everybody uh, who are helping each other find the book. There's lots of copies of it out there, it turns out. They exist, yes, and you guys have been rad with helping us find them. Um, and yeah, just so you know, this is a, it is a definitely a sci fi tale. It has all the hallmarks of a great sci-fi tale. It has also things that feel piratical, piratical, pirates. It feels piratey. There's, there's pirates. a little bit of there's, there's ships. <laughs> what she's trying to say is there are ships and pirates. There's ships and pirates. There's <laughs> alien races. There is treasure hunting. There is a little bit of mercenariness. There's um, swashbuckling. Got, there's actual swashbuckling. So it swashes kind of, are going to get buckled if you read this. They're going to get. Buckled all over the place, let me tell you. Um, there is maybe some romance. There is, uh, yeah. yeah so there's, it, it's got a little bit of something for everyone. Uh, so I definitely recommend if you want something kind of old school but also awesome, read along with us this month for the month of May, The Sword of Rhiannon, Sea Kings of Mars. Awesome. Yeah. Good pick, Tom. It's kind of Edgar Rice Burroughs meets Doc Savage meets Lee Brackett. I don't, know, I don't even know. <laughs> and George Lucas approved, of course. And George which... Lucas. Yeah, it means George Lucas. There you go. Yeah. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. Uh, Anthony St. Clair, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people follow all of your stuff online? You can follow my adventures and find the Rucksack Universe at my website, anthonystclair.com. And my ebooks and paperbacks are you know, all over the place online and whatnot. And they're Fantastic. in print, easily found. Yes, they are in print. <laughs> And of course, thank you, our listeners. Our show is currently entirely funded by our patrons at patreon.com slash sword and laser. If you think you get a dollar's worth out of this episode, as I probably said in the beginning of this episode before we started recording in the bumper, uh, then give us a dollar back or however much you think you can give. Uh, you know, we're, we're hoping to hit our next milestone so we can guarantee fantastic author interviews, much like the one we kind of had today, uh, twice a month. And uh, you can learn more over at patreon.com slash sword and laser. Uh, you can also support the show by buying books, uh, books through our links in particular. We get some referrals on that. Uh, so find links to the books we talk about in the show notes at swordandlaser.com. But also we highlight books that are mentioned in the show. So for instance, Men at Arms uh, will be at swordandlaser.com slash picks. There's all kinds of books that have been mentioned in previous episodes there as well. So if you're just looking for something to read, go to swordandlaser.com slash picks. Indeed. And if you want to let us know how we're doing or send in any suggestions, you can email us at feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 4157-SWORD-6. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.
podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.